Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Goldman. We're chatting today with cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, who is graciously hosting me in his home today to take a look back on the achievement 20 years ago shooting Saving Private Ryan for Steven Spielberg. And with the 20th anniversary of that legendary film arriving this year, we thought it's a good time to look back on the adventure. Janusz, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Glad to talk to you about the experience. Appreciate it on the American Cinematographer podcast. And first question, can you believe it's been 20 years since you shot that movie? Oh boy, we just, you know, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of Schindler's List and here we go. Right. 20 years or since, since, since Saving Private Ryan. And the time just goes fast, so fast. I came here in 1981 and I can truly remember almost every year. So time goes by really fast, 20 years, my goodness. And speaking of the time going by, you know, as you reflect back now, it's been 20 years, how do you view the accomplishment, the importance of the film? Um, I mean, obviously it makes money, it wins awards, but, but the accomplishment or the importance of the film in a lens of 20 years as opposed to at the moment when it's all happening and there's all the hubbub and you're winning awards and that kind of thing. And 20 years later, you reflect on it as a piece of work and, you know, in, in your folder. How, how does that make you feel? I just think that, you know, Saving Private Ryan is one of those movies that, that really has uh, stood um, passage of time. It's one of those movies that is in, in history of cinema, like, like Lawrence of Arabia and, uh, and all those movies that people will go back and go back through generations. You know, it's timeless. It's, I mean, I just saw it recently simply because I felt a little bit insecure about my work and I wanted to see it if I've got it, still have it. Mm -hmm. And I was very much encouraged with my um, achievements 20 years ago. And I'm not sure if I would have the same bravado or... Yeah, if I, if, I, if I would be as ballsy as I was mm -hmm. then, you know. I mean, youth has a lot of uh, attributes and, and good things, many bad things, but one of them is, you know, you take chances, you know, and and certainly from the visual standpoint of view, we took chances because we couldn't really go back to, to, to fix the material. So, so if the material was no good, you would have to reshoot it simply because it was so much... There was so many manipulation done to the negative, which is the original blueprint of the movie, that, that if it didn't work, we, we would fail. Now, as far as the story, obviously it's timeless story, and it will always be relevant, just like the, the, the big red one and many other uh, war movies. You know, it's just that we, we found this different, slightly different way of, of telling the same story, which is the, the, the atrocity of the war, and shall I say, you know, some beauty in the war from visual standpoint of view war is a beautiful event to photograph you get fires you get smoke you get often blood you have men in the heroic uh, situations you know um so visually it's always very stimulating i mean of course uh, intellectually it's the worst thing uh, humans can go through and people can still learn from this movie people still see the movie and being and people are still being very moved by reality of that particular picture from my point of view, the movie definitely feels as contemporary, as relevant as it did 20 years ago. And then, you know, awards are important because they validate to some degree the position of the filmmakers and allow the filmmakers to be brave. That's how I look at awards. There's no other reason to, to, be, to, to expect awards other than feeling that you're doing something right and, and being empowered by that. You know, all that fame and, and publicity and all that stuff is not as important. The, the ability to be braver. Well, you call, I went back and read the American Cinematographer article from that era when the movie came out, and uh, I think you were quoted as, as calling it a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And you shot, prior to that, quite a few movies, and you've certainly shot quite a few since. Um, you know, what makes Private Ryan specifically once-in-a-lifetime something you're not going to replicate in many other projects? Well, not naturally the store. I mean, such a, a, such a pivotal moment of the Second World War with the invasion of Norm Normandy and the entire uh, uh, European battlefront changing for better um, and the human sacrifice and, and the significance of, of military 
um, mistakes that were made. And Saving Private Ryan kind of a little bit alludes to that. The unsuccessful glider planes landing, which was just a, a total disaster when people were just crashing down on those uh, gliders that were overloaded and just dying senseless death. Not that there's a, not that there's a, a death that, uh, that has sense, but in that particular moment, you know, it's just um, operation that was not well executed some, at, at some points, right? Uh, but the significance of the, of the movie is that it reminds the Europe to some degree, it reminds the Europeans how significant, how important the participation of Americans was in that particular part of the world and makes those who want to make a certain connection, make them realize that the moment the Americans pull out of Europe, Europe started falling apart a little bit. You know, uh, you have uh, the war in the Balkans, you have creation of, of European Union. I don't know if that is significant, but to some degree, the presence of Americans created certain security within the, within the continent. Once American troops pulled out, then nationalistic tendencies started uh, coming up again, and there was a need to create some sense of family, and I think that's where the European community was created. But also significance of, you know, the viewers experiencing what it must have been to go through that battlefield, and I hope that they can identify with, with immediacy of death and, and will, you know, some kind of way stop them from, from repeating the same mistakes, which is, you know, going to war and so forth. But as we know, we do not learn from previous historical experience because we continue doing the same mistakes. We always invent some kind of a, a ideological reason for being wherever we are with our troops, you know, and usually the results are atrocious, you know. So... Is it important that people see this movie and realize how atrocious the war is, how, how sad, and, and, and is it important for the audience to realize the immediacy of the death? Yeah, it's a good entertainment. Do we learn from it? Uh, not really. We don't learn from it. You, you alluded to earlier that um, it was also recently the, the 25th anniversary um, a Schindler's List. Um, and these two movies were made, I think, like three, four years apart, something like right. that. Both of them covering the same era and, and, and tragedies within that era of epic proportions and depicting them very graphically, but also very, uh, you know, resonating emotionally because that's what Stephen does so well. Um, were, were the experiences of making each of those movies totally different for you emotionally? I mean, you are a European and you're talking about, you know... Uh, depicting war, you know, and the stories within war, uh, you know, so clearly. Um, were they very emotional for you to do them? Or was it a lot different? Uh, I know technically they were different, but was it a lot different doing one than the other? Well, both pictures were completely, uh, completely different. I couldn't really draw any similarities, except it's Stephen directing and me shooting and the same crew members. But, you know, Sundress is, is such a, such a different creation. You know, you cannot even... Think of it, it almost feels documentary. You, you cannot almost group, you, I wouldn't group that movie with, with all the other movies we've done. There's Schindler's List and then there's the other 14 or 15 movies we've done together. And, and what makes it special is that it really, it really changed people's uh, perception and people's knowledge about, about that particular historical event in life of, of Jews and, and, and Slavs and, and Gypsies and all, all the all the Eastern Europeans to some degree, you know. Uh, but particularly focused, obviously, on, on atrocities uh, done towards Jewish population. But also, it is a movie that celebrates ability of one human to become a human, which is Oskar Schindler, who started, you know, he went to Poland to just make money. He was, he was not interested in saving lives. He was very much interested in making money and exploiting the system to become wealthy just like the good capitalist would do. Except what Oscar did, he discovered humanity. He discovered the power of saving lives. He discovered the importance of, of life. And, and, and he, he certainly used his position to save many lives that resulted in thousands and thousands of, 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 of new lives being created. So historically, the movie also was very, very accurate. We shot in, in, in the country where the... Where the, where the uh, story took place. We shot in Schindler's Krakow apartment. We shot in Auschwitz, although we did not shoot in the existing camp because we felt it was just uh, uh, not appropriate. It was a, it was a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a monument, so we didn't want to bring our cameras 
into existing camp. However, we did build our own camp on the other side of the of, of Auschwitz, Auschwitz camp. So when you're looking at the uh, infamous gate, it's actual gate, but we are on the on the civilian side of the camp. So so the train is actually pulling out of the camp, entering a public land, and on that land we build our own um, sets that would be part of the uh, existing camp. Um, and there were a few scenes that we shot outside the gates of, of Auschwitz in our movie camp that did not end up being in a movie. But besides that, you know, it just felt very real. And I remember one morning waking up in the morning in Krakow um, and getting US, USA Today, which was the only publication you could get. And there was a picture of a little boy, uh, the famous picture, sticking his arm through the barbed wire, barbed wire fence, barbed wire fence and showing the member. And we just shot scene three days ago, just like that. And I was so narrow-minded and so ignorant, thinking, oh my God, here's Spielberg with the, with the movie. The world is telling, it, it, the, the press is telling the world that Stephen's making a movie. And then I read the article, it was the opening of this Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. But it looked so real, it was real. To me, what we were, what we were doing was so real that I forgot that it's a movie to some degree. But the material we were getting was so almost almost documentary-like quality, you know? It's a different movie, you know? It's, it's, it's just everyone was working with, with, that, with that mighty touch of, 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 of bigger power, you know? All the actors were inspired, all the crew members were inspired. Yeah, it was just a very, very monumental experience. Not that we were always crying and, and, this, and stuff, but, but, you know, it was a very focused, um, precise operation with occasional moments of joy. Uh, usually the joy came from eating a little bit of a Polish food, you know, having some uh, Polish sausage and dumplings and, and go on and all that stuff. But, but, you know, the work was very serious and, and the, way, the winter was, was pretty, pretty uh, atrocious. You know, the German dogs were German dogs. The German actors spoke with the German uh, accent, you know. So we've created this, this reality that that no other movie would, would be able to create simply because we were there and the, and the subject matter was, was very significant. But again, I do want to emphasize, it is not a movie about Holocaust per se. It is, to me at least, it's using the example of Holocaust to um, really um, emphasize the ability of one person to change and save lives. You know, of course, when these anniversaries come, um, like I believe the powers that be for Private Ryan, they're now about to, to release the, the, the big 4K Ultra HD mm -hmm, Blu-ray mm -hmm. and all that and celebrate the anniversary. Were you uh, involved in the remastering of it and, and preparing that work for, for re-release? Um, since this release won't be generally seen on cinema screens, you know, how important is it that people get the same creative intent you had um, when you were making it in a different era for a different, um, you know, a different medium, as it were? Correct. Um, you know, I was not involved in the 4K simply because the technology is so advanced that um, there's really no reason for, for me to be there. And, and I think we're actually working at that during that time. You know, what I've read about the 4K a release that the movie feels even more real to some degree. I don't know what that means really, but I can only speculate that the quality of the images is heightened by the 4K sharpness, you know? I'm still not sure if that's really good. I felt that the uh, <laughs> print was was uh, uh, sufficient enough to, to um, evoke emotion. So if the 4K makes it even better, then fantastic, you know? Um, but again, going back to technology, it is such a, in my opinion, 4K could be flawless for the right uh, for the right project. To me, truly, to be able to tell you if, if I think that there is a there is a benefit for the movie, I would have to see the 4K uh, uh, 4K screening of the movie. But um, I have no doubt that that people who were involved in the 4K release were uh, dedicated towards reproducing the existing images the way they were supposed to be reproduced, you know. Yeah, and I know recently you uh, you spoke at NAB very eloquently about, you know, that there is a concern in the cinematography community and you have that concern about the potential for the manipulation right. of established 
uh, motion picture imagery in this era um, where you can re-release stuff uh, because that's now a huge business. Um, for Private Ryan and, and for Spielberg films, I'm guessing maybe that's not as ho uh, big a concern because Steven has direct control. He's very involved. But for many filmmakers, that's not necessarily the case. You know, is that what, what you were getting at about how we can retain authorship when they are going to re-release them and... You know, someday they're going to do maybe a guy a uh, hundred years from now is going to decide, hey, Schindler's List should be a color film, you know, that kind of thing. As you stated earlier, I definitely have certain concerns about cinematographers' ability to retain the original quality of images. And as we all know, these days you can you can take the image and, and really, really, really manipulate it to such an extent that that at the end may not resemble the original image that the cinematographer created. In case of working with Steven Spielberg and, and, and other directors that I've worked with, they have tremendous respect towards the cinematography, they have tremendous respect towards every participant of the, of the, of the project, that they would never alter the movie without consulting with the, with the creator of the, of, the, of the image or the creator of the wardrobe, you know, all that stuff. So it's very respectful and Steven has uh, infrastructure created through his company that would um, assure that those images are not altered. So there are people who go check the prints, you know, Stephen himself checks the prints. In terms of uh, digital scanning, there are people who are, uh, uh, you know, there are people that we work with uh, consistently in the past with, and people that with whom we will work in the, in the future who are very respectful towards retaining the the quality of the original image. My concern is that, you know, what happens to the image if, if there is no Spielberg? What happens to the image where if the director who is responsible to some degree is not as powerful as, 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 as Spielberg? Is the, is the, is, are the people responsible for maintaining the quality of the original image are going to um, retain that, that uh, image, you know? And it has happened to my friends who are not as highly respected cinematographers where the image would be taken out of the out of their control and and completely altered to the point where it would not resemble the original uh, the original image and how do you alter i mean you can alter various ways you can make the image very flat very bright uh, usually it's too bright and too flat nobody really complains that the images are getting too dark most of the time they go too bright too flat and the color gets altered perhaps you know Someone doesn't like the idea that the image was a bit warm, and then they, get, then, then they make the choice that the image should be bluer for whatever reason. You know, I've heard a really, really silly situation where people in control would not, would not like the color of the dress, and the, dress, the color of the dress would be altered, or they didn't like the, the way the, 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 the actor looked and they would make it brighter and, and flatter for whatever reason. So there are those instances where the images are, are altered beyond recognition, but generally speaking, the new technology supervised by the right people could benefit the picture. And I certainly have experienced firsthand where I could alter image during the final color corrections and I could alter the image to such a degree that, that, that the image would become better. So saying, saying, saying those things, I also must say that advancements, particularly technological advancements in, in color grading due to our ability to scan the image and, and control each section of the frame independently, created opportunity for cinematographers, for those who are creating images, to be even more creative. I also find that the technological advancement in color grading due to uh, our ability to scan the negative, create a field where a cinematographer can fully control the image to the extent that he was not able to or she was not able to create in a conventional way. Um, you have infinite ability to control the color, you have infinite ability to control the brightness of the image, you can reintroduce light where you, where you, where you didn't put the light originally, you can create shadows where, where you didn't have shadows. If you conscious of those techniques, to some degree, you can, first of all, save a little bit money by not um, spending the time to controlling the lights on a movie set. And I think often that's very uh, a significant amount of money when you're running $300,000 a day 
on a movie production. So basically you're running $30,000 an hour and you take extra, you know, hour because you want to put a shadow there. Then through the course of the picture, you're already, you're already spending a lot of money. Now, if you know you can put a shadow in the post, obviously you will communicate that with the director or, or a person that you're collaborating with, telling them, look, in the post, I will create a shadow. Let's just go right now. Let's not spend time creating shadows on the wall. I'll be very, I'll be able to do it very quickly in the post. Then naturally, the technology allows you to 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 save money and and be very uh, um, artistic with your with your work during the final timing. Uh, but again, the final timing needs to be supervised by those people who created the image. If you have a director such as Spielberg, who is a very sophisticated visually and who's technologically savvy, who knows the process because he's done it so many times with me or without me, he will naturally um, continue with the, with the quality of the image created by the original, original creator. But of course, the collaboration between the cinematographer and the director creates opportunity for exchange of visual ideas. I must say, Steven sees the colors a little bit different than I do. Uh, I like the images to be slightly, occasionally slightly greener. Steven is not too crazy about green. So there's always this little bit of, a little bit of conversation, you know, how much more magenta can we add to, to eliminate the green. But generally speaking, he's very sophisticated with, visual, with visuals. And I'm not, not always that good in terms of talking about technology. But the essence is that in the right hands, it could be a very, very helpful tool. Well, and th th that is fascinating to me because, you know, I, I think at NAB you also spoke about someone asked you, well, if you made Private Ryan today, you know, would you do it differently because you have all the digital tools available? Would you shot it digitally? And you were very adamant that you made it the right way and, you know, there was really no reason to think about another way to make it. But even with that being the case, as you mentioned, we're in the area of the digital intermediate and, and, and what you can do in a color grading suite if you know what you're doing, as you've mm -hmm. stated. Um, would Private Ryan therefore invariably be a different film were it made today? even if you did a lot of the same shooting techniques the same way or shot it on film the same way? Well, I think it would be slightly different simply because as you're sitting in the color correction uh, uh, suite, you experiment with the contrast and the color. And I'm, and I'm sure the temptation would be to, to go a little bit more contrasty, not go as flat as I did, and, and maybe make the blues slightly more... Um, bluish you know the movie as it is right now it's very pale and very very bleached out a little bit you know colorless uh for the specific reason that you know the world has, should not have color and i think i would i would, I would probably alter it a tiny bit or maybe not you know it's just kind of like what would be if if what what would happen if you know when i did the color corrections for the dvd release we didn't really alter much we did a little bit more contrast but very little simply because we could it's much harder to control contrast, particularly con contrast with the, with, the, with the photochemical processes. But once you, you know, once you expose the negative certain way, as far as the contrast, it's almost impossible to, to put more contrast into negative. You can make it brighter, you can make it darker, but that space between the, 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 the brightness and the shadows, you, know, you can't really alter that, that photochemically. So the DI allowed you to alter that particular uh, uh, space, you know? And I would say that is the biggest advancement, for me at least, where you can control the contrast and also you can control each particular section of the frame individually. Other than that, you know, I think, I think I'll keep it as, as it is, you know? Simply because I already know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Simply because I've achieved the, 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 uh, the image. It's, there's, a lot of it has to do with getting the image where it needs to be and often not really knowing what, the, what that image will be until, until you have that image. So sometimes that's why I really miss the whole collaboration between, between lab and cinematographer. And there's a guy in the lab, a guy, who looks at the negative and sets the machine, and he's the first one who sees the image coming out. And that person has their own aesthetics. That person has their own perception of what that movie may look, what the movie should look like. So to me, it was always a great surprise to see the image 
believe the image was a little bit different from what I expected. And the image would be the image would be different from what I expected simply because you're adding another element, another human who is looking at that and he or she are setting the colors without you being there. Often I would reprint the dailies because the dailies would not resemble my expectations, but occasionally I would love what the timer did. Simply because I wanted to go a little bit warm, but they've put a lot of warmth and created different sets of aesthetics. If I want to go a little bit blue, they don't know. Yeah, John put a little bit blue into the positive. He doesn't know what that means. So he would put blue and he would put more blue, and I love that, you know? So I, I, I miss that process. Now, when you go into the eye, Bob will do whatever you want. Bob put too much rail, too much, too more, too more, too, Bob put two more points of yellow or blue or green, and they'll do it. And then you start questioning yourself, you know, I'm lost at that point, you know, mm -hmm. so I missed that in input from another person. So going back to Saving Private Ryan, if I've done the picture now, I probably would do it the same way. Now, whether I have the ability to do it the same way, whether I have the, the bravado to do it the same way, that's another story. This is 20 years ago. I was younger, more naive, and more, more uh, prone to taking risks, you know. That's why the result is as, as such, you know. I think taking risks is very important as long as it doesn't um, endanger other people. But particularly in terms of creativity, being creative, you need to feel a little bit nervous about your work. You need to feel like you're walking on, you know, walking on, the, on, a, on a rope and, and if you make a mistake, you, you break a leg. Not die because nobody dies, you may get fired, but breaking a leg, you know, it's not bad. You talk about the bravado of your youth and 20 years ago and, and some of the experimentation you did, and I want to get into a couple of those things, but... Talking about the post-process, uh, you did do, if I remember correctly, um, an e and pro process, uh, you know, to desaturate, uh, and you did uh, some sort of technique to emphasize red, the blood in, in the movie, um, for creative reasons. You know, all, all of those sorts of things. Were you feeling within the, the confines of the technology of the day, um, you know, and the way it was done at that time, uh, that you were experimenting uh, with the color timing process? Well, of course, yes. I mean, you know, there was a, there's, there's a, a great cinematographer named Vittorio Storaro who was, no, I don't know if he was, I don't know if he was the innovator of, of photochemical processes. I'm sure someone else done it before him. He just employed the knowledge that, was, that already existed where he would enhance the, the images by using silver retention processes, you know. I just took it to another level, not necessarily new level, but I didn't want the contrast, but I wanted the, the desaturation. So the way for me to achieve that result with Saving Private Ryan was to flash the negative, which is basically, as you're making the movie, you introduce very low level into negative, which, in theory, you are exposing the negative and you are altering the, the entire uh, 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 structure of the negative. And if, you, and if you do it the wrong way, you will fail. But if you do it the right way, you flatten the negative, which means there's more light in the shadows, which means there's less contrast, which means you're desaturating things a little bit. And then what I did, I reintroduced the contrast through retaining the silver into negative because I wanted that kind of a metallic quality of... Of the, of the highlights that only you would have by keeping the silver in the negative. So essentially I was flashing the negative and then knowing that I would put an ENR process that increases the contrast, I was eliminating the, 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 the flatness of the, of the negative for that particular reason. Now, so by doing both processes, I was desaturating the image, but not, again, not making it uh, so desaturated that it was colorless, you know? Now, so I've done, I've, I, I've done, I've done modifications to the lenses um, by removing the protective coating that is part of the design of the lens. I allowed it, the light to travel freely. What is the protective coating? Each lens has a dark coating between each elements that controls the, 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 the light as the light moves through various, uh, various parts of the lens. You know, there are several, usually several elements in the lens and, and that black coating uh, doesn't, doesn't diffuse the light. When you remove that coating, the light travels not in the direct way, it gets scattered across the lens, so effectively makes the image, particularly the highlights, even more um, uh, diffused and, and lowers the contrast as well. So the purpose of that was to create imperfections within the image, because the image should have not been perfect, an image that deals with, with telling a story of, of, of such a magnitude, magnitude as, as Invasion of the Normandy. Effectively, I was trying to somehow 
simulate the, the quality of the images created during that invasion or Second World War by combat cameramen. And I figured, well, the equipment was probably not as well maintained and probably banged up. So there were many imperfections in, in, in the equipment that they're dealt with. So why not recreate that in my, in my Hollywood movie, right? Because there were, I mean, it strikes me that there was all sorts of, uh, uh, given it was a technology and, and a way of making movies at the time you were well acquainted with, but there was a lot of experimentation. You know, right. you mentioned photochemical processes and lens manipulation. There was uh, frame rate um, and shutter speed um, things. Pre-flashing. Pre I was doing pre-flashing with a little panaflasher mounted on the, mount the back of the camera. You know, occasionally, we could, you could introduce it with the color as well. So if you want the shadows to go slightly bluer, slightly warmer, you could introduce warmer light into the, into the, uh, into the shadows. It was a fascinating experience, you know. I mean, you can do similar things right now. But nobody's doing it simply because there's lack of knowledge. Uh, there are too many people you have to you have to communicate with in terms of your idea, and anyone can take it away what you've created. So technically, you can flash the the, the 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 film, the images as you're making. You can do anything you want. You can simulate the look of any particular particular period. You know, you can do s simple app. That will simulate Super 8, you know, or Super 8, or simulate Ektachrome. It looks fabulous. Looks fabulous. Dollar fifty-five, you know, and with your iPhone, you can have a you can have a black and white uh, uh, images that look like you've done them in the nineteen thirties. But you're simulating, you're not creating. Is there anything new created in visual storytelling due to the advancement in our technology? I don't think so. The the, the lighting style that became very popular lately and synonymous with 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 contemporary uh, cinematography has not evolved any different from uh, Philip Rousselot was doing. You know, those guys, those masters, particularly some of them coming from Europe. Mm -hmm. I just watched, I just watched uh, Deliverance, you know, Zygmunt mm -hmm. did amazing work. So, you know, what they're doing right now, meaning they, what the young cinematographers are doing, they're simulating the look that existed before, except before, man, you had to know what you're doing because it's just, you're working with, and exposing the negative, you're working with with lighting levels that were that were very risky. You know, you could slip very quickly and and fail. Uh, you look at you look at Rousselot, which I think is one of the best cinematographers ever. You know, his work was just stunning. You know, you look at uh, Queen Margot. I mean, the low levels of light. You know, and how soft the light was. You know, it was masterful. Now it's very easy to do it. So the mastery of that particular time became a form of very popular storytelling lately, you know. But can those guys do what, what, what we did, you know, before? What we did, can, can, can those guys do Indiana Jones or Lawrence of Arabia? And, you know, is there really reason to do that? There's really no reason to do that because the aesthetics evolved. Now, I happen to think that they didn't evolve towards towards positive experience. I think it's it's evolving in towards lack of storytelling and and, and, and and lack of, not necessarily visual panache, it's more about using the light as a form of, as a, using the light as a dramatic form of storytelling. When Philip was using soft light, there was a reason, there was a story, you know, when, when uh, Nestor Alamandros was using his soft light in, in the in the great movies he's done, there was a reason to it. It's not just because it's available. It's a it's a it's a style. There was a reason. I assure you, Nestor and, and Philip can light nineteen uh, thirties could light nineteen thirties movies. In fact, Philip done it. He's done Sherlock Holmes. You know, mm -hmm. as a mature man, he can light like a you know. So that artistry is done, and I hear this all the time from other filmmakers saying. There's a part of the film legacy that is that has vanished due to the technology that we developed, you know. And I'm a little bit sad about it, but you know, you're moving forward, you know. Uh, maybe the movies need to get different to require that kind of a lightning style, you know. Uh, you look at the uh, uh, La La Land, you know, which is a beautiful musical, you know. So the lighting style reflects that kind of a time period, you know. Mm -hmm. But definitely there is a style right now that is prevailing and common and, and a little bit monotonous. 
So is it fair when we look at Private Ryan, uh, the legacy of Private Ryan in terms of your career, it, it's one of those rare times where you were pretty unfettered, free to really experiment. 100% correct, correct statement. Uh, the need for experimentation was dictated by the need of finding a technique to, to make the audience feel like they are actively participating in this event, you know. It's not for the sake of being this and that, you know. Uh, the images had to feel visceral to me. If they felt visceral to me, I knew I, I succeeded. If they felt the real, I knew I succeeded. And there's not just, there's a process that goes into it. You start thinking, you know, what it is like to, to, to be that guy coming out of the water, you know, after concussion, you know. I mean, what is concussion? You know, what are your senses, you know? So then you think, what is that? How can I achieve that? So you think, well, I, I can't play with, that, with the exposure. Now, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, play with the frame rate. So when he comes out, he's a little bit slow motion, but he's not really slow motion because it's not traditional slow motion. It's 12 frames double printed. So, so it's 24 frames, but, the, but every frame is printed double. So it's, it's not slow motion. The image is altered. Just like his, his, his perception will be altered. And naturally, Stephen introduced the sound element that with Gary Rice from where, where the whole, whole another level of sens senses are, is altered. So, so at the end, you've got, this, you've got this production designer who created an amazing set for us to work with. You've got a great actor, Tom Hanks. You've got great special effects. You've got good visuals. You've got great sound. And all those elements combined together perform one and only one function. Make a better story, make it more real. And, you know, the technology is there, you know, to, 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 you can do anything you want. You go to Panavision, they will alter the lenses. You can go to, you can go to a great DI suite with Michael Hatzer, who's been working with me. He'll give you whatever you want. He can get the image that you created. He can zoom in 100% to a close-up. And we've done that for, for Lincoln. The experiment, experimented with Lincoln, where we shot the image, then we zoomed in for a close-up. And it looked like authentic. It looked like an image from 1866, you know, from that particular time, you know. I mean, it was amazing, you know. So the possibilities are limitless due to your aesthetical sophistication. So if you have it, you can create it. Going back to Saving Private Ryan and my ability and need to be experimental and, and innovative with, with images comes from, always comes from the story, but also... The biggest element of that is the director. The director has to has to not be scared. Has to not has not has to not be. Director must be brave. The director must be willing to go where he hasn't been before or she hasn't been before. And in case of Stephen, you know, if anyone gets a chance to work with him, boy, you you'll be surprised how how great it is to work with him. He will he will encourage you. To take chances, whether you are a production designer, custom designer, composer, any field that's creative within the, within the movie business, he will encourage you to be best at it, you know. Of course, you have to serve one purpose. You have to, you have to serve the story. If it's just, if it's just serving the, the only purpose to satisfy you as a creator, then you're failing. You've got to be responsible for the story. Um, so Stephen was embracing the, 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 the images and, and he was encouraging everyone to be more risk-taking, you know. Well, speaking of the, um, you know, serving the this, this story, whenever we talk about or remember or cover a Private Ryan, you know, there's a lot of discussion. It's been well documented about uh, what, the steps you took to, to shoot the, the opening battle, the, the invasion of Norman, uh, the beach, a uh, 25-minute scene, all that. But I think less attention gets paid to, um, you know, the closing battle uh, in the movie, Battle Rommel, um, which is also incredibly graphic, but, you know, from my point of view, even more emotionally compelling in the sense that I, I was now invested in the characters by then. And to see them get clipped and die um, was absolutely devastating. You were expecting some heroic performance and off they go into the sunset. What was involved, you know, creatively, technically, emotionally uh, in, in constructing that and make sure, making sure it held up to the high bar you'd already set at the beginning of the film? Well, I mean, first of all, it's, uh, uh, as you know, it's a totally different battle, battle, battleground at that point. We are in the urban environment and things are much more... Um, much more dangerous because you are surrounded by, by buildings and the enemy could come from around the corner or the sniper could be in the sniper tower, all that stuff. 
But also, as you mentioned, we are already on the journey. We've done this amazing opening, and then we go through a journey and and, and seeing the the, the the war from the perspective of our guys, realizing that mistakes were made uh, uh, during the during the invasion, realized that that you know there were other Ryan's in the movie. Finally, meeting uh, meeting uh, Private Ryan and going to Ramal for a final battle. The aim was to again create r realistic setting, but also to some degree, and that's going to sound really strange, but you know you gotta entertain the audience to some degree. And we like watching wars. We like the Western movies. We like the you know it's entertaining to some degree. We like the the danger that they go that people go through because for us the viewers it's safe. So the more entertaining it is, the more real it is. And certainly the entertaining aspect was not on our mind during the opening of the movie. But we wanted to some to some degree entertain the audience with the with the final final movie, make it more heroic, make it like, you know, when 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 Tom dies, uh you really went on a journey with him. So the approach was a little bit different. Um, we still applied similar techniques, particularly when it comes to speed manipulation and shutter degree, simply because we wanted to create that kind of a staccato movement, you know. We wanted to see the explosions in a hyper-real world, simply because that's how the soldiers would perceive the explosion. And you achieve that by, by changing the shutter degree so the shutter stays low, open a little bit longer, so the so the particles of dirt in the frame became more accentuated. So you got that sense of you know reality. But the camera also was essential in terms of making it more believable. And Stephen has this ability, as we all know, to manipulate the camera moves to create camera moves that are very intricate. And elaborate, and I always make a joke. You know, occasionally I make a joke that yeah, we're making a Steven Spielberg movie. It's gonna be close up in the white shot in the same take, <laughs> and that's usually what happens because Steven believes there's a there needs to be a reason for a cut. He likes things to present themselves in one white shot or one continuous shot because it's real, and he's right. Because also it's more, you know, more challenging for the actors, and it's because it's more challenging for the actors makes the actors deliver more realistic performance, I believe, you know. And when you're running with the machine gun and you're falling down and you're grabbing the barrel of the gun because you're an actor, you forgot it's hot and you're burning your hand. That's what happened in case of Ed Burns. But yet you're still performing. You got the real thing, you know. You are a soldier. And the moment you call cut, that moment is interrupted. You're not a soldier anymore. You're an actor who is getting a makeup person coming to you. You're drinking water. Maybe you have a cigarette. But as long as, as, as the camera is rolling, you, you're, you're that soldier. So that the immediacy of performance guaranteed by length of the take is very apparent in, in the final battle where, you know, we're following, we're following Wade as he's going with the, with, the, with, the, uh, with the ammunition on his neck, you know. We see him falling down. We see the death from his from his point of view, you know. So it's entertaining, it's real, and it's a good storytelling. The sets were just just spectacular. Tom Tom did such an amazing production designer. He did such an amazing such an amazing sets. We built up that that little town with with river and the bridges. You know, it's just you know now you wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. See now that aspect would not be there. You would build partial sets and create the rest through CGI simply because it would be just cheaper. Now, would that create better reality for the actor? I'm 100% sure it would not. The reason the actors were able to immerse themselves in the character because it felt real. You know, I was burning fire, I was burning smoke, I was spraying the water on the actors. It was real. And if you're an actor, you want that, uh, you want that sense of reality so you can be even better at your performance. Well, that issue of, of being realistic, you know, I got to, in thinking about Private Ryan, I got to thinking, of course, Stephen's done a wide range of films, and we've done the, the fantasy and sci-fi stuff, the big effects, and we just did one uh, with Ready Player One, and, and that's all fantastic, but it struck me that the period pieces, certainly in the time you've been collaborating with them, I think 
Private Ryan was your fourth collaboration at the time with him. You've done a ton of period work. I, I mean, the, the Private Ryan, Schindler, and Lincoln, Amistad, Munich, um, Warhorse, uh, Bridge of Spies, Post, um, you know, uh, all, all that kind of stuff, Indiana Jones. Um, I'm curious why both of you, you and Stephen, gravitate, you know, to these historical or, 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 or you know, period work. Um, and, you know, secondly, how it is uh, that you, since you span two eras, the, the analog and the film era, you know, the, the, the period of time where you made Private Ryan, and now today where things, as you noted, are done at least somewhat differently um, due to the technology and, and, and practicalities, um, you know, how you can maintain that realism, why it's so important to you guys. You know, War Horse, entirely different film, different war, but also very realistic. Uh, I think one of Stephen's underrated movies. Mm -hmm. I agree. I really don't know clearly why he why we haven't not I'm not sure why we haven't done a contemporary movie. It's always you know, fifty hundred years in the past or live in the future. It would be great to do a to do a contemporary drama that is based in reality without the effects, kind of like what we did what we did with the Post, which I think was just one amazing movie. I think Stephen was so amazing. In terms of directing the actors, not just I mean, I mean Stephen's work is so restrained, so amazing. The, his ability to do almost pull back on his ingrained in him need to move the camera into this rather uh, a static movie. Yes, there are some shots, you know, moving around the actors, but generally speaking, it's tableaus, you know, such a restraint, such a mature work. It's it's you know it's 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 you know it's Alan Pakula, it's it's Mike Nichols, it's all those great great guys, you know, that he admired, you know, and he was friends with, you know. Uh, uh, he made a movie that, 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 that it's that in, that's in that category. But yeah, I don't know why, he, why he's not drawn to, to contemporary teams. I guess always would be the only one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with Holly and, and, and Richard. And that's the only contemporary movie. Um, yeah, it'd be great to make a movie like, you know, a thriller, contemporary thriller, you know, or something that is, you know, edgy and maybe a little bit erotic, you know, because uh, as we all know, as we're getting older, we we are drawing towards those teams, you know. He likes the period time because maybe there's more, you put, you can put more pathos into this. You can make more of the story out of it. Our lives, as we're living our lives, don't feel important enough. There's not enough pathos and and importance. That's that 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 must be some of that must be why we're making while we're making period movies, you know. It's hard to identify bravery with civilian life. And it's hard it's easier to identify bravery with the with the war. So, you know, some of the contemporary movies are about war are just amazing, you know. So I don't know. Yeah. Now going back to technology how we manage to evolve as the technology is evolving. The truth is we haven't really evolved. We're still making the movies with the same equipment. The equipment, unfortunately, is not evolving. The equipment is beginning to fail a little bit because, because all the attention is put towards digital things and the cameras occasionally fail. And that's a natural, natural uh, process, you know. Uh, so, yeah, we're still making them the same way, you know. The lighting units evolve tiny bit. Um, some of the some of the um, processes, the digital processes that you can control the image, made the image uh, made my made my ability to control image a little bit better. But it's very strange because you know you do this. I have a usually timer with his own with the truck on the set. We time the dailies because the dailies have to look as close to the uh, final. Uh, the final image as possible because Stephen falls in love with the images and and it's very hard to convince him to to change the image drastically at that so so we have a timer but this is the conundrum so we have a timer he gets the images on his avid he's looking at the avid and obviously the medium is completely different you're looking at the screen no matter how big the screen is you're still looking at the screen that has different different luminance definitely different different light reproduction where the highlights go white and milky. Now we go into the eye and it's a different animal. We're not looking at the 
at the electronic image. We're looking at the electronic, we're not looking at the image on the electronic device. We're looking at electronic image on a piece of screen, which automatically reproduces the light totally different way. So now we are manipulating the image, not to resemble the dailies, but to resemble the digital uh, monitor, you know. And that's occasionally a bit frustrating, you know, simply because, you know, he falls in love with that. When we had the negative, when we had the moviola or whatever, yeah, you knew that the image would be a little bit duller, occasionally a bit warmer, but it's all within, within the three points. You're not altering the whole process how you're viewing it. It's still light hitting the negative and it's projected at you, just like the projectors. So that, that thing became altered a little bit, you know. Is it important? On the grand scale, not. Is it a little bit frustrating when we're doing the timing? A little bit, yes, because we're looking at the flat screen project, flat screen versus big screen, and which we, we end up putting windows on the, on the DI to simulate. At the end, it's all good, but it becomes a little bit frustrating. Now, we've we got to wrap up, yes, of sir. course, we've gone long, but, um, you know, looking back, sort of summing up, the legacy of Private Ryan for you as cinematographer in your career, is, is it reasonable to say that had this project simply never happened, if there was no Saving Private Ryan, you would not be the same cinematographer you are today? I mean, I know you learn on every project, um, but did yeah. that evolve well, definitely, you? Definitely, your you, you statement is accurate. I would be a different caliber cinematographer, naturally. Yeah, Stephen still be Stephen. He will still be the most successful, the best director in the world. I'll just have a little bit less of legacy, you know. My felt that images that I've done with other movies, particularly Munich, were, were, were stunning in terms of the storytelling. But Saving Private Ryan is a very unique movie for my career. Yeah, and since we talk about Saving Private Ryan, I will start with that because I feel that in Bernard Butterfly was as innovative and as uh, experimental, as challenging as, as Saving Private Ryan, you know simply because of the perspective of, uh, of the camera being the actor, you know, and creating that language and, and, and creating the images that were representing what John Bobby in Diving Bell and Butterfly saw as he was looking around, you know. But yes. Well, I think that is a great place to stop. And of course, we'll be back to celebrate more anniversaries and more of these, uh, these films on this well, I list. So. Um, but I, I want to thank you, Janish, for thank taking time much. to spend with us. Great talking point. to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 